This is the All In Gospel Podcast, where we go through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, every week. If you like the podcast, go ahead and subscribe or join us at allingospel.com. Enjoy your Bible study. Blessings. All right, so Exodus 29 is where we're at. Um, we are um, we have done the tabernacle instructions. There's an ark, there's a table, there's a lampstand. There are four layers or framing that's over the tabernacle. There are priests that are dressed in blue and white, so that's the team colors. And they have bells on their robes. Is this bringing the last few weeks back into your memory? Okay. So in Exodus 29. Oh. <laughs> that was so sharp, quick, and good. Um, so verse 1, now I'm totally distracted. <laughs> but in a really good way. I, I'm, th- I'm thinking myself because I'm like, I should have thought of that. My son's outpacing me. Finally. Verse 1. And this is what you should do to them to hallow them for ministering to me as priests. So this is going to get carried out in Leviticus 8, right? Like this is how you're going to prepare these priests for service. To hallow them is the Hebrew word kashan. And I know I'm pronouncing that with a Minnesota accent. A kash, uh, kashan is to set apart, to sanctify, or to make something unique for God. This is how we're going to take these servants and make them ready for ministry. And of course, my antenna perk up, this is suddenly not just about this model or this imprint for heaven. This is about the people that get to work with God. And I don't have to go too, I don't just stretch too far to think, okay, well, how does that work? Um, and for next week, we even get to talk about oil mixtures and things like that, which I've encouraged my wife to try to figure out, but she's having trouble finding some of these ancient spices and things like that. But we'll see what we can do. And it also says you're not supposed to mix this because it's just for the priests. So I don't know if we want to even go there, but I kind of want to know what it smells like. Anyways, here's how you're going to consecrate or set apart or hallow these people. And therefore, it's not the people that come with inherent worth. We don't come to Jesus or the king or to God with all of our talents and skills and say, God, you need me to keep your kingdom going. It's the opposite way around. God prepares us for service to him, not because of what we bring to him, but what he brings to us and what he does to us. So here's the things that get done. First, take one young bull and two rams without blemish. Immediately, a modern Christian is kind of ruled out of this particular process, right? Because we don't all have young bulls that we can bring to the table. Verse two, and unleavened bread, and unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers. So three of basically the same thing in different forms, right? Three kind of unleavened breads. Anointed with oil, you shall make them of wheat flour, and you shall, I'm sure that's gluten-free, and you shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket with the bull and the two rams. And Aaron and his sons, you shall bring to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and you shall wash them with water. And then you shall take the garments, which was last chapter, put the tunic on Aaron and the robe of the ephod, the ephod, the breastplate, and gird him with the intricately woven band on the ephod. You shall put the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban, and you shall take the anointing oil, pour it on his head, and anoint him. And then you shall bring his sons and put tunics on them, and you shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and put the hats on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs for a perpetual statue. So you shall consecrate Aaron and his sons. 
So there's three acts here. You're going to wash them with water, they're going to anoint them with oil, and then they're going to clothe them with the word. The description of the consecration for the priests of service, here they're going to put on garments that were made in the last chapter. So this is part of that redemption picture that gets laid out over the last few chapters, right? God declares them the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, chapters 21 through 23, specific instructions based on the Ten Commandments, a little elaboration on those commandments. 24, the covenant gets made. Chapter 25, Moses gets instruction for their future failure. Like, this is what you're going to do to redeem these people from their sins prior to their sin ever happening. Which I like, because God makes a plan before we even screw up. So all of this is about this kind of redemption process. And there's one other thought on this. The redemption work, the work of these robes being put on the priests, there's no part of this where the priest does anything. Everything gets done to the priest. And I think that's an important distinction. God works with humans, but God essentially provides everything we need to do ministry. And God doesn't put us in situations we're not able to handle. He gave Danny exactly what she needed to deal with her situation and minister or serve that person at her work. Right? So we're always done that. She had to actually pray for it and ask for it, which is a process that really fits what's going on with this consecration process. So there's a holy priesthood that's going to serve all of Israel, and God's going to work with some of them to save all of them. Right? There's unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers, different thicknesses of breads. There's nothing anywhere else that tells us why there's these three different things. I have to believe at some point we're going to find that out. It'll be one of those questions you can put on your notepad for when you get to heaven. Why were there three different thicknesses of bread in this situation? And we might get to that more in Leviticus, but I wasn't able to spot it or find it. The door of the tabernacle meeting is where this happens. That's an interesting. Think about this place. If it's right at the door, it means it's right out in front of everybody. This consecration for ministry happens publicly. It's a public declaration where everyone can see what's going on. It has to be humbling because they don't have their robes put on yet. The only piece of clothing that isn't mentioned is their underwear. So back to the underwear, remember the very last uh, sentence of the last chapter? They're basically out in their underwear in front of the whole community, getting washed and anointed. So there's a humbling process that happens as they're getting washed and they're getting prepared and those clothes get put on them. They humble themselves before the people. They get washed with water by a lava that's gonna introduced in the next chapter. Like there's a piece of furniture that God's assuming is there that's not actually there yet because it doesn't fit that image of that process. So it gets put in exactly when it should be, but right now they will be washed is what gets said here. So God orders those things in the order of the spiritual significance of them, not in the order of chronology or geography, right? So there's a spiritual significance to the law, so it goes first. And here we're consecrating the priests, which seem to be less important than the clothing that gets put on them. And I think that's true of our Christian walk. We're less important than the roles God gives us. So when we put on a role, we do it with all our heart, mind, and soul. So the garments then, if in that order of significance, the garments are actually more important than the priests. You can take the priests and change them in and out, but those garments are going to be the constant that the people of Israel are going to recognize and see. They get anointed. In Hebrews 5, we see a, an image of Christian anointing that goes on. So you can put Hebrews 5 and do that in your Bible study this week. There's high priests that come from men that are going to serve men and women, right? So there's this tribe that's going to get set aside later. Um, they're not there to glorify themselves. They get called. Aaron doesn't take his role, and he didn't campaign for his role. He didn't apply and get a position. 
He was given it because he was called out by God. That's a tough thing when you're waiting to serve the Lord and you see other people getting called to do these things. And I remember feeling that way like, man, it'd be really cool to be a missionary in Burma and all these kinds of things. But I don't have any open doors to Burma and I don't know anybody in Burma. Unless Mandy's mom knows things and she's like, I can get you into Burma. But you think, but then you kind of got to think, well, I guess I'm going to serve where I'm at. I'm going to serve with the people I know. I'm going to serve my kids, my wife, the people at my work. And I'm going to do what God's called me to do and where he's put me. So Aaron doesn't put himself in this position. He gets put in this position. In fact, Aaron is barely a character in Exodus. He's just some guy that God picks. Jesus, likewise, in Hebrew 5, didn't glorify himself. He didn't apply for a position of priest. He didn't campaign for it. He was picked for that thing. Um, and God said to him, you are my son, and today I have begotten you. Oil is poured on the priest in Psalm 133, verse 2. 133, verse 2. It is like a precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that it went down to the skirts and garments. We are not talking about a little dabbing on the forehead of oil. We're talking about taking the whole cup and dumping it on the priest's head. So when it runs down their beard and onto the clothing, that's a powerful perfumed oil that is going all over these priests, right? A complete drenching. So Aradim has the crown put on him. He gets the urim and the thummim, so he can have the judgments of God put in that little pocket. So he's got those things put on him. They're not his own clothes. The, the temple owns these clothes, not Aaron. And you see a priesthood for the first time in history where the priests aren't the most powerful character in the, in the equation. Right? And every other pagan religion around the world at this time, those priests are the top of the food chain. They make the decisions. They own the position. They, they do everything. And in this situation, Aaron's barely even a character. And I think that's kind of beautiful. It takes all the pressure off of us that we just have to call on God to do our work. Every Christian, the New Testament explains, is prepared likewise. Ephesians 5.23, you are prepared that you might sanctify and be cleansed with the washing of water by the word of God. So this image of getting washed in the New Testament, that image is you're supposed to read the Bible or study it with geeks like Sean, and you are washed by that. There's a cleansing process when you study the Word of God, if you're in the Bible. How many Christians do we know in our lives that don't even read that book? Well, if you don't read it, you're never cleansed. You're never going to be prepared for service. You will never get the call to go to Burma, right? It doesn't work that way. Right? The first thing is you wash, you get washed by the reading of the Word. Here's the cool part about the Word. We can study the Word of God. I hope we can at least. We can even disagree with about what it means and what it says. But there's still a cleansing process for both of us. And that disagreement might be that God wants you to do this kind of work and wants me to do this kind of work. So when we read the same book, we both hear different things. Not that the theology is different, but that there's a living aspect to the Word of God where it washes us, it cleanses us, it prepares us for ministry. There's a truth to it, a big T truth, not a relativistic truth, right? Titus 3.5, according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. The second thing that washes you, the word of God and the Holy Ghost. You should be washed by a Holy Spirit that actually inspires you to say the right things when you're in your human resources meeting, right? You pray for it. It should actually happen. And there should be these moments where you're like, thanks, Lord, that came out just right. And then, of course, Jesus is the last thing that washes us. Revelations 1.5 says we're washed by the blood of Jesus. There's a cleansing process that happens with believers. And these are symbolic cleansings, of course, right? But in this case with the priests, it was an actual washing, and they would actually do that. 
So there's the word, the authority of God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus. The three natures of God that wash us and cleanse us. We don't do it ourselves. It gets done to us. But we got to go and ask for it. So the sons start a royal priesthood. They get hats put on them. There's a kind of, I don't know, almost like a marriage ceremony that's happening where these priests are being dedicated to this service. It's where the Catholics get the idea that priesthood's a lifetime service, right? I think that's a misreading of the Bible because that's not necessarily what they're trying to teach. But Ezekiel 16 paints this whole thing like a marriage ceremony. They're getting married and they're getting anointed by oil for a, a service to God. You shall also have, verse 10, you shall also have the bull brought out before the tabernacle of meeting, public, and Aaron and his sons shall put their hands on the head of the bull. When it says put their hands on it, I don't think in the English it captures what you read in the Hebrew. Kamek is to push the hand, and it means to push your hand into something with force, right? Not just put your hand on it, like you know, like you put your hand on somebody when you pray for them. This is to actually forcefully push something forward, right? So they put their, symbolically, they're putting whatever sins they have onto this bull. And to do that, I don't know, I even think with like, with pets and stuff like that, it's they're looking at you. That bull doesn't know what's about to happen to them. They're just this innocent, brown-eyed bull, and you're kind of just putting your hand on them, thinking about what this bull's got to take on your behalf. But the bull's the redemption price for their sin. They lean into it. They press that sin into the beast. They confess their guilt, and they trust in faith that this is going to work. And that takes a little faith to think that my sins are going to suddenly be put on this bull. I have to trust that God's going to take that as an exchange, right? So these priests are trusting that that's going to happen. Verse 11, Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. The life of the bull is going to replace the life of that priest as a redemption or as an exchange. Verse 12, She'll take some of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger and pour all the blood beside the base of the altar. You shall take all the fat that covers the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver, and the two kidneys, and the fat that is on them, and burn them on the altar. And But the flesh of the bull, with its skin and dry offal, you shall burn with a fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. When you take that flesh outside, the part that stinks when you burn a body, and if any of you do farming or know this kind of thing, the flesh is what really stinks. When you smell burning flesh, it's a horrible odor. Take that outside the tabernacle, burn it far away. What you're going to burn in the tabernacle is the tasty part. You take all that fat, I don't know if you've done this or not, you take all that fat and throw it on a fire, it explodes. <laughs> it's kind of fun. But when they take all this from a bowl, that's a lot of fat that they're going to dump on this brazen altar. It's going to just go boom, and it'll explode. It'll be kind of a fireworks show for the people that are there to see this ceremony happen. It would be a neat moment. And little kids would go, oh, <laughs> right? So if you ever are at a place where you get to uh, be part of a butchering, I know don't take your young kids to that. I made that mistake. But there are some elements of this that would be kind of exciting or something to see or a ceremony that would be enjoyable. God's very specific. I mean, he's telling you where the two kidneys and the fat that's on the kidneys. He's being extremely significant about what he wants to see happen for atonement. And you think, what's the purpose of that much specificity? Why is God that particular about these things? And part of it might be, David ran into this, right? They hadn't read the instructions, and David had one of his priests get killed because they were carrying, moving the altar in a way they shouldn't have been. Part of this is just submission. I think God wants the priests to pay attention and do it the way they're told so that their actions are done according to God's will. When we act in our life and do it our own way, why would God bless that? But when we do the things the way God wants us to do them, 
and then we experience different things, good or bad, God's going to hopefully support what we've done because we've done it according to his instructions. When I see that much instruction on how to take this bull apart, you got to think that sometimes God's just saying, will they obey me, even if they don't know why to do all these things? That said, you take all the fat out, and what we now have left is a perfect barbecuable bowl, right? What's sacred then, my point with all that, what's sacred then is not the instructions or the rules. What's sacred is the submission to God, and that we follow God's instructions as best we can. And we don't get to define that as humans. What is right, true, and just, and holy isn't ours to define. It's God's to define that gets tough when you live in a culture that starts to define good and evil in different ways. When God says this is what's good and evil, and the whole culture says this is what's good and evil, that puts us in a tough position sometimes, where we have to decide what's good and evil. And the Bible's pretty clear on that. Do you fear what man thinks of you, or do you fear what God thinks of you? And you got to make a choice. What do you fear more? So here's the sin offering. you got this innocent bull it's going to take on all this sin and it's going to pay the price for that sin. It won't be pretty when that happens. There will be an idea then of a sin offering as a sacrificial atonement. And this is doctrine. It happens throughout the rest of the Old Testament. There's a sin offering that gets done. You sin, there's going to be a life that replaces your life. The pardon for the sin comes because you found an acceptable victim. They ask you to take your best bull, your best lamb, your best pigeon that you can find. You take the top of what you have and you sacrifice it. So you give the best of what God's given you, and that's what becomes your sin offering. So they take it, they burn it up. This is going to get burned all the way to ash, and that ash will be held as sacred. It'll get wrapped in white linens taken outside the city, and it'll be dumped outside the city as a kind of a precious thing, right? Sin offerings then get burnt up. This part, and I should say this too, what we're describing here isn't a pretty scene, right? Can you picture this? This isn't. This is a brutal, kind of visceral, bloody event, with lots of blood, lots of carnage, lots of smoke, and and this poor cow that has to take all this sort of thing. The punishment's not easy to look at. The punishment that bull has to take, and they didn't do anything wrong, is hard to stomach. I still can't get my wife to watch The Passion of the Christ. Because it's hard to look at sometimes when you see a sacrifice being given that's not deserving of what they've gotten, and they give that on your behalf. That's tough. And these priests had to be arm's length away. Like they were right up next to this beast that's going to give its life for them. The horns of the altar then aren't for the priests. In this sense, those horns are going to get consecrated with blood. We have this altar from which you don't get to eat that sin offering. There's no benefit from the sin offering. It just gets burnt up. Hebrews 13, verse 11. We have an altar from those... You notice I'm citing Hebrews a lot as we've gone through the last few chapters, right? It's because Hebrews pretty much walks through these chapters and explains them to a new Christian. So I don't even have to go very far to do my commentary research. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible, and I can just look it up. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. The priests don't get to eat this. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought to the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Jesus met all the rules of sin offering. Therefore, let us go forth outside the camp bearing his reproach. And the writer of Hebrews tells us, like, Jesus was our sin offering. That's the equation. Then there's a burnt offering. We're going to get three types of offerings tonight. Burnt offering starts in verse 15. You shall also take one ram 
and Aaron and his sons shall put their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall kill the ram, and you shall take its blood and sprinkle it all around on the altar. Again, this is a messy process. Then you shall cut... The word sprinkle, by the way, isn't like our sprinkle, like little colorful sprinkles that you put on your cake. The word sprinkle is to splash or douse, right? It's to just take this bowl of blood and slosh it all over the place. So it's spread on everything and everyone in, the, in that area. You shall kill the ram. You shall take, the blo- take its blood and splash it all around on the altar. And then you shall cut the ram to pieces, wash its entrails and its legs, and put them with its pieces and with its head, and you shall burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. It's a burnt offering. So this one's sweet to the Lord. The animal is still the representative. And um, they're going to not keep any of this. Again, it all gets burnt up. If we confess or we fail to give our all, the animal now gives or atones for us, and we get to have our life be returned to us. So the sin offering and the burnt offering go together. And they always go together. In Leviticus, we say that in Deuteronomy, they're going to go together. They're going to be two things that kind of happen at the same time. And here's why, because they're not the same thing, right? We can promise to give God everything we have, but never deal with our sin, right? It is, that is possible. They're not the same thing. Or likewise, we can deal with our sin and never give our whole life over to God. They don't go together. They're not the same thing, but they do go together. The ideal that God's plan is that you both deal with your sin, your sin offering, and you make a burnt offering, you give your whole life over to God, that they happen together. And we see a lot of that. When you meet other Christians, your friends, your family, your neighbors, you'll find people that have given their life to God, but they haven't dealt with sin. And you're going to find people that have dealt with their sin, but they're really not serving the Lord, right? They've got their life in order, but they're not doing this. And in that sense, they really never get to be ministers of God. They're still in the kingdom, right? We still have sinners in the church, and we still and there's still a place for them in the courtyard. But we have people, if you want to serve God, you've got to do both of those things. There has to be a sin offering and a burnt offering symbolically in your life. You have to do both. You have to deal with your sin, and you have to give your life to the Lord. What does that look like? Verse 19, then we have the third offering. After the sin and the burnt offering, we get the peace offering. This is the good one. This is the one where we get to kind of have this new relationship with God that's one of peace. And this is also the first official barbecue in the history of the world, right? This is the one they get to eat. The peace offering, they do get to keep the meat. They get to eat it. They get to feast on it. And I always like this image that when you come into the courtyards of God, you actually leave with Tupperware filled with peace offering, right? That you leave with something. I think that's why Jesus got upset when the priests were taking things from people instead of giving things to people. Like, they're, if they're cooking things all day, there's way more meat than the priests need for themselves. They're supposed to be giving it out to the people. Right? But let's read it. Verse 19. Then you shall take the other ram, and Aaron and his son shall put their hands on the head of the ram. Now, at this point, they've dealt with their sin, and they've given their lives to the Lord. So at this point, when they put their hands on the ram, they're probably blessing it. Right? We're not transferring sin at this point. Then you shall kill the ram and take some of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tip of the right ear of his sons and on the thumb of their right hand and on the big toe of their right foot. It's very specific. And then sprinkle or splash the blood all around on the altar. And you shall take some of the blood that's on the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and on his garments and on his sons and on the garments of the sons with them. And he and his garments shall be hallowed. So this isn't, there isn't sin on this goat. 
this goat is a perfectly innocent goat that's just going to hallow or make everything clean. And our modern sensibilities, when you rub blood on stuff, we don't think of that as making it clean. In fact, we kind of think the obvious. So you got these beautiful, very expensive robes that they're going to splash blood all over these robes. And they're going to mix it with oil. I don't know if you caught the oil part, which is going to cover up the smell of the blood. So it's still going to smell good. His sons and his sons' garments with him. I should have finished the sentence. So these garments aren't going to remain clean and pretty, right? And when you, whenever you see pictures or illustrations of the temper in the tabernacle, the priests are always beautifully clean, right, and sparkly and have little cartoon smiles on their faces. These priests probably, and if they had beards, would have been kind of burly-looking guys. I mean, they carry the altar on their shoulders, right? These would have been people that were doing sacrifices with bulls all day. They were butchers. They would have had big forearms, thick guys. They would have been dealing with lifting and carrying things most of their day, right? And they've got blood all over them. So a proper illustration, if they've been consecrated with a peace offering, is they should have blood all over them. They should more look like more, more like a Vikings episode than these little cartoon things that we see in the, the kitty Bible handouts. Just a thought. The ear, the thumb, and the toes, all three of them are right. I'm sorry to my lefty friends, but in this culture, right meant the stronger side. If you sit at someone's right hand, that's your strength, right? Your right thumb, your right ear, your right toe, those are the strong parts of your hands, your feet, and your body. That peace offering then was participatory. That blood actually gets applied very particularly to the priests. They're gonna hear God, gets rubbed on their ear, so these priests are going to commit themselves to hearing what God says. They're at peace with God. They're going to hear what he says. The thumb or the hand, the, the, or I'm sorry, the toe, they're going to walk in the ways of God. They're going to follow the law. So that's what they're promising to do with the peace offering. Then, of course, the hands is the part of your body that does the work. So they're going to walk with God. They're going to hear God. They're going to work for God. That's what they're committing to, and that's what that blood kind of means. So in that sense, the blood represents this consecration of life that's going to happen. They've given a life. Now there's a life that's going to be consecrating these priests and doing it. So that's a lot of work these goats and bulls have done. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it's the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. The blood gets mixed with oil. The life, the thing that represents life, gets mixed with the thing that represents the spirit. Your flesh and your spirit start working together in concert. You're not fighting with yourself all the time. Even though Paul says, like, I do the things I don't want to do, and then I don't do the things I do want to do, he's wrestling with that idea of his flesh, his blood, and his spirit mixing together and working together. And that's what he's pursuing as a believer, that those two things can suddenly be in harmony. Your flesh isn't constantly fighting against the spirit, it's mixing with the spirit. The blood of Jesus then does the exact same work for us, according to Hebrews. Verse 22, you shall also take the fat of the ram, the fat tail... I wonder what kind of rams they have if their tails are fat. But The fat that covers the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver, the two kidneys and the fat on them, and the right thigh, for it's a ram of consecration, and one loaf of bread, one cake made with oil, one wafer from the basket of unleavened bread that is before the Lord, and you shall put all these in the hands of Aaron. First of all, try to hold entrails. I don't know if, has, how many of you have butchered animals? Let's say you were on a farmish kind of place, right? Not until college on herds you get the farm. Okay. Did you ever get to hold entrails or these? I mean, hunting, I'd see, like, my dad's cousins would be, like, gutting their ducks and beers, but I never held any of it. Okay. <laughs> I'll just say it's slippery. So when you say take all these things and put them in your hands and hold them up before the Lord, 
that would have been kind of a task. It would they would have been this would have been a mess that they're trying to hold up. But they're holding it up to the Lord as a wave offering. They're going to wave it before God. God, this is going to be yours, right? So they present them to God. They give them up. Verse 25, you shall receive them back from their hands and burn them on the altar as a burnt offering and a sweet aroma before the Lord. Again, you're burning the fat and the good stuff. It's going to go poof. It's going to smell glorious. And it will be something you could smell from miles away. You know when you drive into a neighborhood and you can smell the campfire? way better, way more powerful smell, and it would have just tasted delicious. You'd have come anywhere near this Israelite camp, you'd start salivating, right? That fat is the good stuff. Try more bacon, right? That's the kind of stuff we're talking about, that thigh fat. It's an offering made by fire. Can you tell them what we just, it's good we have supper or I'd talk more about food. Um, it's an offering made by fire to the Lord. Then, Verse 26, you shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's consecration, wave it as a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be your portion. What do you get to eat? You get to eat the good stuff, right? God gives on this peace offering, God gives the best of the animal, the tasty part, right? The people get to eat it. That's for you, right? So you're going to cook that proper and use those bronze forks that you had in the last two chapters ago. You're going to cook that meat just right. Anoint it with oil, frankincense, myrrh, and now you get to do that. At this point, that you that we're talking about is God. Remember, this is still God talking to Moses. So that first one, the first time they consecrate the priest, the breast gets eaten by Moses. But as they do new generations of priests, it would be the older priests that get to eat of that first peace offering, and they would get to taste it. But that breast right there for you means Moses gets to eat that primo piece, right? It shall be your portion. It's interesting, though, that this is an offering, and it got waved before the Lord. So we give something to God, but then God says, even though he owns it at that point, he gives it back to Moses, and that's peace, right? So you can offer things to people when you're at peace with them, and they'll offer things back to you, and that's what's going on here. It's a two-way kind of thing. And it's getting given back to Moses when it's been improved by consecration. God blesses it, and then it gets given back. This is part of why we pray before meals today and we have for centuries, right? Is that we say to the Lord, this food is all yours, Lord, and we appreciate that we get to eat it. And we say, bless this food to our bodies. And it's an interesting concept, right? Either that food's poisoned or it's not. Praying over it will not change the poisoning status of it, but it can be blessed. And God can say, I'll bless that food, and then you can eat of it. But we're basically saying, Lord, the food's yours. And we know the food's yours. Everything we have, all the bounty of our table, it all belongs to you. We wave it before God and smell the fragrances, and then we eat of it and we take partake of it, just like Moses is going to do here. It shall be your portion, right? Verse 27, and from the ram of the consecration, if you look down to see how long of a chapter this is, that's part of why I'm skipping a lot of the Hebrews. <laughs> it's a monster-sized chapter. And from the ram of the consecration, you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering, which is waved, and the thigh of the heave offering, which is raised, of that, of that which is for Aaron, and of that which for his sons to eat. Everybody's going to get to eat here. And it shall be from the children of Israel for Aaron and his sons by statute forever, for it is a heave offering, and it shall be a heave offering from the children of Israel from the sacrifices of their peace offerings, that is, their heave offerings to the Lord. Heave offering, you can unload your extra stuff too. So this isn't the temple tax, this is a heave offering. If you want, you can bring in extra food for your priests. And the people of Israel can make a heave offering with the peace offering and have an even bigger barbecue. 
So you're going to have wealthier people like Abraham, right? He had thousands of sheep under his control. You're going to have some of these wealthier people that bring in 15, 20, 30 sheep saying, this is a heave offering. I don't need this many sheep, and I just want to feed the children of Israel. So the barbecue just got bigger. Verse 29. And the holy garments of Aaron shall be his sons after him to be anointed in them and to be consecrated in them. That son who becomes priest in his place shall put them on for seven days when he enters the tabernacle of of meeting to minister to the holy place. So God's saying, this is how I want you to do it. And he's already accounting for the next generation, right? You're going to keep doing this ceremony with each generation of priests. It's not the priest who matters. In fact, other than Aaron, we have nameless priests, right? He named Aaron. He named a few of his sons a couple chapters ago, but he's already accounting for generations of priests that will fill those robes. Verse 31, that's humbling, by the way. My name might not get mentioned as a servant of God right? So I kind of have to trust that I'm serving God and it's not about my name. It's not about me. It's about God and glory going to God in all things, right? And you shall take the ram of consecration and boil its flesh in the holy place. And Aaron and his son shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that's in the basket by the door of the tabernacle meeting. And they shall eat those things with which the atonement was made to consecrate and sanctify them. But an outsider should not eat them because they are holy this particular festival is for the insiders. It's for people committing their life to the Lord and the priesthood. It's for the ministry. And if any of the flesh, the consecration offerings, or bread remains until morning, then you shall burn the remainder of it with fire. It should not be eaten because it's holy. So this is for the this is a ceremony for consecrating the priests. It should just be for those priests. And we're going to burn up the rest of it. So this isn't necessarily that kind of thing. But that peace offering can be bigger in other occasions because they're going to do these all the time. This forces the priests to live day by day in the faith. They can't store stuff up and put it in the refrigerator for later, right? This is for that day, right? What they get then is amazing. This is a wonderful meal. But the idea of it is that there's a symbolism and atonement and a very original kind of thing that's going to happen here. So a sin offering, it removes their guilt. A burnt offering, unconditional surrender to God. And a peace offering, which is the result of the sin and the burnt offering, so that they can now have fellowship and work side by side with God to do his work. Kind of cool, right? So they have to show gratitude, humility, sacrifice. It's going to take seven days. It takes time to do this ceremony. This is a long process, right? And for now, it's only for the Aaron and his sons. The outsider gets defined later. Um, in Leviticus 22:11, a priest can buy someone and they can eat of this offering too. So a priest can bring people into their household and let them join in this. And the rule is, Leviticus 22:11. but if the priest buy any soul with his money, he shall eat of it, and he that is born in his house, and they shall eat of this meat. So it's about the soul, the service, or the employ to the temple. This fits with Christians. It's very important for us. You don't have to be an insider. You don't have to be a son of Aaron to partake of this. You just need to be purchased by a son of Aaron. One of these priests, maybe even the high priest of Jesus Christ, can purchase your soul, not your person, not your work, not your labor. He can buy any soul with his money. Isn't that interesting? You don't buy a slave, you buy a soul. And in this case, that law fits with Jesus Christ. If Jesus is the high priest, he can purchase your soul and then you can partake of this meal. You can become part of this ministry. So I just think it's cool when you see stuff in the Old Testament, it actually works perfectly with a New Testament covenant too. And that's one of those kind of situations. We get grafted then into his household. 
We are now a member of that household. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. I said that too fast. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Did you get it? Okay. We have conversations afterwards. You go too fast for these verses. All right, here it is. Or you do not, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you and who you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. If you've been bought, then Leviticus 22.11 is the law under which you're bought. You're part of the priesthood family. Congratulations, you get to have barbecue. Or you get to be part of this consecration. And I just think that's amazing. You can take average Gentile people like me and I can be consecrated for the ministry, not on anything I've done, but because God puts a spirit on you and says, I'm going to use you. And I'm going to purchase you and I'm going to purchase your soul. And I just think that's epic. Like it's movie quality, right? My soul got bought. For some reason in the movies, they always have like Satan, you sign away your soul to the devil, you know, kind of. But God buys souls too. He redeems souls because we're already in sin. We're already on our way to hell. Satan doesn't have to sign a covenant with us. He just has to get us to ignore God. God's the one that purchases and buys souls under the law. Isn't it interesting how Hollywood flips that completely on its head? Right? Because they want you to assume you're on your way to heaven. You're not. You're in sin. You need to be purchased. Thank God I've been purchased by the blood of the Lamb. These are the rules. And I keep thinking, Levi really touched me that one time afterwards when he's like, I just wish there was a yes or no. And I just think these are one of some of those moments that here's the rule, here's the law, and that law saves my soul. There's a clear answer on this. Under the law, I'm saved. I don't even have to take that on faith. I just have to believe this law comes from God. That's not a leap of faith like Kierkegaard says. That's a very small, very logical and reasonable step of faith, right? It's the law. I can read it. I'm saved under the law. Hallelujah. Let's move forward and do the work of God. Verse 35, thus you shall do to Aaron and his sons according to all that I've commanded you. Follow the rules, Moses. Seven days you shall consecrate them and you shall offer a bull every day as a sin offering for atonement. Okay, I'm eating massive bull-sized feasts and every day, I'm thinking what they burn up at the end of the day is probably larger and larger as they go through the week because at some point you're full, right? And God just keeps filling them. This is a gorge fest right? Eat the entire goat every day. So these priests had to get over any eating issues they had, right? You're going to do it for a week. You shall cleanse the altar when you make atonement for it, and you shall anoint it to sanctify it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and sanctify it, and the altar shall be most holy. We'll come back to that most holy. When, whatever touches the altar must be holy. That's why they had rings and poles, right? They're not supposed to touch the ark. They're not supposed to touch the table and they're not supposed to touch that altar because if you touch it, you should be consecrated and holy, right? And I think that's kind of cool because a lot of times we think of our sin as something we want to run away from and ignore. And that bronze altar is something in the Bible, we're supposed to run towards it. We're supposed to face our sin and deal with it. And you have these stories, like one of the rules that we're going to find later in Leviticus is if you know you're guilty and you want mercy, you're supposed to run to the, the horns of the altar and grab those horns and hang on to them until a priest comes by and says, what are you doing? Right? And you get a fair judge. But you're supposed to grab that altar and hold it. If you're not supposed to touch it unless you're holy, that means you just put your life at risk. Right? You're giving yourself over to God's mercy because you have, as a sinner, grabbed that horn and touched it. 
right? So you're either going to get killed or you're going to get forgiven. And I think all of our lives, that's kind of what we got to come down to. We're either going to get killed or we're going to get forgiven. And we trust that God's a merciful and a good God. And we sing songs. God, you're a good God. We love you. Thank you for being a good God. Because we really want to be on good terms with our God. So we run to the altar. We don't run away from it. Because whatever touches the altar must be holy. And we don't make ourselves holy. So God provides. He provides the clothes. He provides the transfer of sin. He provides the forgiveness. He does all the work. And Aaron just sits there and eats food. At some point, that exchange is not even. God gives everything, and we enjoy the benefits, right? Lo, we think that somehow we're in charge, or we're the boss, or God needs us to do his work. He doesn't, right? He does everything. He just needs willing servants, and he searches the world for those servants. You, Moses is here. Aaron isn't involved initially. Uh, Moses is the mediator. He's going to do all of this. The altar must be holy. Whatever touches it must be holy. Those two holies are different words. And this is the part where it's cool to see the Hebrew. The, the must be holy, the end of the sentence, is kadash, which means sanctified, washed, cleansed. The holiness for the second holy, whatever touches the altar must be holy, that holiness is not inherent, but you get cleaned to be it. In other words, you have to be cleaned to touch the altar, right? Genesis 2-3, on the seventh day, we're supposed to keep that holy, it must be kept, right? You don't, the Sabbath isn't holy in itself, we keep the Sabbath holy, we wash it, we clean it, we set it aside. Remember that from Genesis? Exodus 13, 2, the firstborn God claims is his own. The firstborn isn't his until we give it. It has to be cleaned, washed, it has to be set aside. Exodus 19 is the same use of that word holy. The cleansings of the people and the priests are here again. Those priests have to be washed. The, wa- the priests aren't clean, they're cleaned and they become holy. See the difference? Then the first holy, the one that says the altar shall be most holy, that holy is Kadesh, which means apartness. It is set apart. It's not made set apart. It is set apart. It's sacred. It is holy. It's not made, right? When Moses was told the ground at his feet was holy, that's the word that got used in Genesis, in Exodus 3, 5. The ground you're on is holy. Moses didn't make it holy. He didn't clean it. In fact, it's hard to clean dirt, right? It was holy. God made it so. Exodus 15:11. God is gloriness, glorious in his holiness, Kadesh, the second use of the word, right? The place God habitates, Exodus 15:13, uses that word. That mercy seat is holy. It's not washed and made holy. It is inherently holy, right? The garments that the priests put on and that holiness to the Lord, that's the Kadesh. Holiness to the Lord is something that all things that are holy are the Lord's. And the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, is actually Kadesh Kadesh, where the ark sits, is two uses of that same Hebrew word. So the altar is of the same holy quality as the Ark of the Covenant itself. The ground that Moses stood on God himself, that's the level of sacredness that altar has at this point. It's been consecrated, but it wasn't made holy. God has it being holy. It's a slight distinction, but I think it's interesting that you see that in English, you just see the same word used twice. And it's not the same word. They're two very different ideas. The altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar has to be cleansed or made holy. Make sense? Only the priests touch that altar. So this is hidden from our sight but it's one that we should be able to see. 
and that bronze is then holy. Atonement is made possible. Um, and when this happens, God reaches out and will consume the off- offering. Uh, so when they actually do what God's telling Moses to do right now, it's in Leviticus 9. So we're a long ways away. <laughs> we're in this for a while. We get to meditate on this whole exchange for a little bit. Leviticus 9, when they actually do this, the Shekinah glory that's in over the ark shoots out of the tabernacle and consumes what's on the bronze altar out front, right? It just, and the people of God get to see this going, whoa, holy moly, God takes this altar and suddenly that altar is a holy place, right? Not washed by humans, but washed by God. It's not the priests that do that, the altar does it. And I think that's kind of cool because once again, the priests are the least important part of the equation. The altar is far more important than the priests. The priests have to get washed. The altar doesn't. Does that make sense? Right? So no human gets to take credit for any of this. Whatever touches the altar has to be made holy. There's a lasting effect on that. It can be anything that is made holy. And in our repentance, we become holy. In our humility, we become strong. When we are weak, we are strong. God takes that and transforms it. This is an incredible picture of the covenant that God has with people. An incredible picture. There's no way to the glory of Jesus except by the blood that gets sprinkled on the altar of the cross. And in every subsequent situation, there's no way to get to Jesus if you don't, you have to think about the cross, that life that was given. There's no path to holy that doesn't come via that same sacrifice that gets made. Same law, same rule as what we have here. Let's look at the New Testament, Romans 6.6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, Jesus, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. It's done. It's burnt up completely. Galatians 5.24. Those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with the passions and desires of it. This is more than just a bull and the goats that are dying in the altar. This is Jesus dying as a sacrifice for our sins, right? Whatever he calls holy is holy, right? Romans 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, right? Not literally killing yourself, but a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That holy is the washed holy. You're made holy, acceptable to God, which is a reasonable service. If God's going to save your life, it's reasonable you give your life back to God and you serve him with it. Verse 38 of our Exodus chapter. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs of the first year, day by day, continually. You're going to get up in the morning, you're going to sacrifice the lamb. You're going to do the evening, you sacrifice the lamb. You don't just get saved by a magic prayer when you're 12. Right? That starts the journey. But you're supposed to day by day continue to make offerings. You give your life every day to God. Verse 39. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, another lamb you shall offer at twilight. I like to think of that as what we do when we do devotions. You wake up in the morning and you're in the Word. You go to bed, you're in prayer. You're in the Word. And you're doing that every day. You just make a habit of it. It's an ongoing commitment day by day. This is the long journey. This is not the magic superstar moment at the rock concert. This is a the daily journey of doing your work in Christ every day. And God will bless that. I think that's sweet and that's simple. God doesn't demand a lot from us. He demands very little. I always tell people, they're like, oh, I don't have time to do my devotions. It's like five minutes. You don't have five minutes? Seriously, like just put a Bible on the counter in your bathroom and read it while you brush your teeth, right? How hard is it to give that reasonable service to God? That very simple, small thing. When you go to bed at night, don't fall asleep till you've said some prayers. 
right? And even have a Bible on your nightstand so you can roll over and read it on your... You don't even have to put a lot of work into it. But give God some do before you go to bed and when you wake up in the morning. Start and end your day in those prayers. And most of us do. And that's where you start to grow in your faith. Day by day, sweet and simple, easy to do. Verse 40. With one lamb shall be the one-tenth of an ephod of flour mixed with one-fourth of a hen of pressed oil and one-fourth of a hen of wine as a drink offering. So that's going to be poured out. The other lamb, you shall offer at twilight, and you shall offer it with the grain offering and the drink offering, as in the morning, for a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. This shall be the continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet you and I will speak to you. God doesn't speak to you. Are you doing your devotions? Are you speaking to him? Right? If you're waiting for God to say something, are you waiting on him day by day, morning and night? Right? If you want to pray for something, do it without ceasing. Do it every day. Right? We're supposed to pray without ceasing. It's the same kind of idea. And it will be in God's time when you get that answer. I know people that have prayed for years on one topic, and God eventually does get the answer. But it's always in God's timing. Like the baby naming ceremony we went to, the Nigerian one. They've been waiting 10 years to have a baby. And in that culture, if you don't have a baby, something's broke. So they had to, at that naming ceremony, the pastor talked about, he said, look, this is all about God's timing. God gave them a baby exactly when God wanted to give them a baby. And they had to really make this point, because in that culture, you know, they had to say, like, this is a good thing. We should be happy, right? But they've been praying for that baby for 10 years, right? And you think, oh, what a glory that has to be. And the, it was difficult. She had to go through how many surgeries? Like multiple surgeries, because it was a difficult birthing process, right? So it was a hard process to go through. But day by day, sweet prayer. And if you knew this couple, they're the most wonderful people in the world. There's nothing better than a joyful Nigerian Christian. Anyways. Um, a continual burnt offering throughout your generations. The Jews are going to do this right up until the time of Jesus. So they're going to make these offerings. They're going to keep these traditions all the way through. Other than when they're in apostasy, they're under a bad king, and they stop the sacrifices. Or the time they're in Babylon, they don't have a temple or a tabernacle to do them in. But throughout the rest of that time, right up until Jesus, Jesus would have gone in as a little kid and he would have seen these offerings. He would have eaten these offerings, right? Luke 1, in fact, has Zacharias, the dad of John the Baptist. He was one of these priests. Because it talks, there's a little reference there where he was, at, he was in serving at the morning sacrifice. So as a priest, Zachar, uh, yeah, Zacharias had to be there at that morning sacrifice and help do these ministries and these duties for the thing. So there were, right up until Jesus' time, these sacrifices were still being given. It says, your generations, which doesn't necessarily mean eternity. It means for a season of time with the generations of this group of people, um, the priests are going to do this. So in Hebrews 10, verse 11, it says, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which never take away the sins fully. That's why you have to keep doing them, right? But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, and from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he perfected forever those that are being sacrificed. So these day-by-day -day offerings for Christians stopped when Jesus gave his sacrifice. He was the eternal one. He's the one that we were waiting for. Verse 43, And there I'll meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. So I will consecrate the tabernacle of the meeting and the altar, and I will consecrate both Aaron and his sons to minister to me as priests. I will dwell among the children of Israel, and I will be their God. 
Verse 45 is an epic sentence. It hasn't been since the Garden of Eden that God dwelt with humans. So you do all this stuff in verse 45. I will dwell among the children of Israel and I will be their God. We're back to what God planned from the start. In fact, I think this is all part of what God's planned from the start. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell with them, and I am the Lord their God. That's the whole point of all of this. The whole point of the tabernacle, the instruments, the implements, all of this is to be close to God. That's the whole point of our Christian walk. It's to be close to God. And here's how you find that happening. You have priests that are fully devoted. They're all in, I like to say. right? And they're repeating over and over and over again this practice of sacrifice. Giving their lives or giving the lives of these sheep as, as propitiation for their sins. God literally does this visibly to the nation when they see this Shekinah glory that's there. And they faithfully do it for seven days. And then God shoots out of that tabernacle and does all this work. So the people of Israel are actually going to see God's presence when we get to Leviticus 9. I'll read ahead for you. Leviticus 9, 23. Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of the congregation and came out and blessed the people. And then the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the people. And there came a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat, which when all the people saw this, they shouted and they fell on their faces. Like, oh, they're down. The power of God and the presence of their lives instant. Yeah, I know, in me, that's like a Veggie Tales moment, right? Anyways. Ah! <laughs> the whole point of this is this almost marriage-like commitment and connection to God where they know Him completely. We don't get to claim God. We don't get to do anything as ministers of God's kingdom, but we get to receive these blessings and these glories. Hallelujah! Right? They're gonna, you're going to get what you need to deal with that situation. God's going to give you wisdom when you ask for it. He's going to dwell with you. And sometimes he's going to give you trials and challenges. And you're going to kind of know, I'm going through this because i got something to learn. Because the Holy Spirit's going to be teaching you and showing you what you need to learn and see in that moment. So there's five promises that God makes here. And I'll kind of close on that just to review. He's going to sanctify the tabernacle with his glory, verse 43. You see that? He's going to sanctify the altar as a means of atonement, verse 44. And Leviticus 9.24, like, that's going to happen. Then he's going to impute his holiness, verse 44, to consecrate the people that frankly don't deserve that consecration. They've done nothing that the Bible says, they've done nothing to deserve this other than that God said, I'm going to sanctify these people. Then he's going to dwell among them in verse 45, and he's going to dwell with them actually with this Shekinah glory for seven centuries, Right? This is going to be something that no one human can claim. You don't have somebody in a back room going, look, I got golden tablets that I lost and you don't get to see. This is seven centuries of God's glory dwelling with the people, right? If you want to eliminate Judaism, you have to just eliminate the Jews. And it's happened three times in history. People have tried to eliminate the Jews, right? The Persians, the Babylonians, no, not the Babylonians, the Persians, yeah, the Babylonians, and then, of course, the Germans joined that infamous collection of people to try to eliminate the Jews. That's how you get rid of the promises of God, because God's promised that this group of people will be there till the end of time. So if there's no Jews, those promises can't be kept. But nobody's successfully done it. He's going to dwell among these people, these, these Jewish people, and be personally present with them for centuries. And then in verse 46, the fifth promise is they're going to get to know God. Well, that's kind of new, because he hasn't been hanging out with them while they were in Egypt, right? But they're going to set themselves apart, sanctify them. God's going to dwell them. And over time, they're going to get to know God. And that promise is going to be there. 
that promise gets to be eternal. That we need a redeemer or a mediator for us, but once we deal with that atonement, once we wash ourselves in the word or the blood of Jesus, that we get to know God over time. The best thing in the world is a veteran Christian who's been walking with the Lord for 50 years and you can just see it coming out of their life. Usually they're decrepit and they can't move very well, but there's a spirit in them that's just amazing. And you're like, I just want to hang around with people like that, that know the Lord in that kind of way, that are totally just committed to the Lord. And they usually aren't scared of what you think of them, right? Because they're so scared of what the Lord thinks of them. They've given up the fear of man. And as a younger person, like for me, I, I need that courage, right? That boldness that those kinds of Christians have. And they're usually also very joyful and happy people. So you get good jokes from them, things like that. Sanctify, sanctify, impute holiness, dwell among and you're going to get to know me. That's the whole point, right? So there we are on Exodus 29. Exodus 30 and 31 we'll do together next week because if you look at verse chapter 30, you're like, that's so short. So I'm going to try to definitely get through both of those chapters next week. And we're going to then kind of anoint these ministers for the ministry. And we're going to mix some spices maybe mm-hmm. so you get to smell what that smells like and, and whatnot. And we're going to set these people up that are sanctified and ready to do ministry. Amen? Dear Lord and King, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you sanctify and you set people apart. Thanks for making a process, Lord, for this to happen. You could have just left us as humanity and judged us as humanity, as you did with the flood, Lord. But this time through, Lord, you're given a pathway to the holy places. And we just thank you for that. We thank you that you call us into a holy priesthood, that we are to be set set aside, sanctified, Lord, and that our sins are to be removed and burnt up totally outside the city. Um, We thank you, Lord, for an altar that is holy, um, that we can we can see that happen. We thank you for your sacrifice of your son that you gave on our behalf for the sins of the world, Lord, that you gave a sin offering of your own son for us. We're, we thank you, Lord, that there's nothing we can do to be holy. We are imputed holiness through that sacrifice, that our sins were put upon Christ in the same way that the sins are put upon those oxen. Lord, we press into and we connect with that sacrifice lord and we just thank you for that that we were also crucified on that cross um, that we are intimately connected with that lord and that you've taken those sins and you've thrown them as far as the east is for the west not for our glory but so that we can serve and minister to your kingdom that we can be holy priests and give our life to your service help us to do that lord give us the strength to do it give us the clothes to do that give us the holy spirit lord to guide our steps in a dark place In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.